The police union says it will fight the city's vaccine requirement in court. The reality is the city acknowledged from the beginning their obligation to bargain in good faith over this subject. They have refused. With the head of Chicago's rank-and-file union saying the Fraternal Order of Police will seek a preliminary injunction to halt the city's COVID vaccine rules. We're notifying the city of the demand for expedited arbitration along with filing a unfair labor practice with the labor board. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about news from the local housing market. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, October 14th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Just Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Welcome back, Dennis. Hi, Amy. How are you? You are on a very important mission. You're touring some of the new rehab spaces of Tribune Tower. Tell me what you saw. Some beautiful things. Uh, the Tribune Tower has been converted into primarily residential, though, as Albie spoke about on the podcast recently. There's also the Museum of Ice Cream and other things going on. But for the past five years, the building has essentially been under wraps as it's been being converted into condos, 162 condos. The models open this weekend or soon. So there was a press tour on Wednesday morning for, well, for the press to see primarily the amenity spaces, the shared spaces that residents will use. We looked at some of the residential, some of the actual condo space, but the amenities are kind of astonishing, partly because that building is so cool that in reusing it, you have these really unusual spaces. This one is not so unusual, what you're seeing on your screen right now, but it's part of a large complex. The whole third floor uh, of, uh, what is it, 11,000 square feet is an, is an amenity space for residents with that bar we saw with dining rooms and meeting rooms and a little place called McCormick's Study, which recreates some of the finishes of Colonel McCormick's office on the 24th floor. They've been moved down to the third. Um, and so you have the, the stone fireplace carved with a quote from himself. You know, everybody needs in their own office a quote from themselves carved in stone. That's what Colonel McCormick had, the old owner of the Tribune, and some of the paneling. All that has been moved down. It's adjacent to this dining room you can see here. I think we have a picture of the of Colonel McCormick. Here it is. Colonel McCormick's study is what they call it, McCormick's study. That fireplace and that paneling were up on the 24th floor in his sort of famous office, uh, and it's been moved down here to the third floor, in part because the 24th is now private space, somebody's condo. And so now everybody who lives in the building and their guests will be able to see this quote from Colonel McCormick. You also, anybody who's been in the Tribune Tower knows that in the, the main lobby of the building, there were lots of quotes. There were quotes about freedom of the press. All that is protected as a landmark. So all that is still there. 
but then there are these amenity spaces like what we just saw. There's a half acre rooftop garden that was created when a piece of one of the old. So the Tribune Tower was really a complex of buildings built at different times. And one of the least uh, distinguished pieces was removed. And here we see a, uh, it's a half acre rooftop garden and condos in both old construction and new construction parts of the, the new condo development look out over this garden. So it's shared space we all use and then my private balcony space overlooks it. And all of this at the foreground of the photo, you'd be going to the east looking toward um, Ogden Slip and the lake. There's another outdoor space where you actually you look straight through what's called the Ogden View Corridor. There used to be the Ogden Shipping Channel or Ship Channel, I should say. Um, there's a little piece of it left, but the entire stretch from the lake all the way to the Tribune Tower is protected as a view corridor. So you're looking from spaces like this, not only at the incredible Gothic elements of the building or the skyline around you, but out, what would that, how far would the Tribune Tower be from the lake? Five, six blocks all through an open corridor to the water. What, sorry, I didn't write. What floor was the, was the, uh, the garden on? It's on what's called the third floor, but I think you're actually about five stories off the ground because Michigan Avenue is elevated. Um, here we're on that 25th floor terrace. Um, you're, so there's a terrace that wraps the tower. That is as, as the tower was built back in the 1920s, but it's now uh, residence shared space. Those windows you're looking at are some of the condos. So they have views down onto you and you have views up through all the carved elements, the buttresses, the American flag from this terrace. And then if you look out, if we were to look out from here, you're looking across the river. Here's a spot in uh, wow. also in that terrace. So that's open space. There's no ceiling here. You're looking through the details of the building out toward, you can see the Willis Tower in the distance, the river, Michigan Avenue, the Dusab Bridge. I mean, I can just imagine when my friends come over to my two and a half million dollar condo in the, in the tower, we don't even go into the condo because we're going to go use some of this outdoor space with these incredible views, both of the building and of the city. Now, let me ask you this. You and I both worked in Tribune Tower and other jobs. Yeah. Could you tell where you were standing? I mean, could you say, oh, this is where that conference room was, or this is where this was, or were you completely disoriented walking through there? Well, the floors we went into were not floors that I ever worked on, four and eight. Uh, and I didn't work full time for the Tribune, I should emphasize. But most of the things I did would be on the fourth and eighth floor. We didn't go on those. I mean, you can't help when you walk into that lobby. I think I was always sort of moved by it. But uh, no, I don't think I could see any space I'd ever been in. I, I worked on the fourth and fifth floor and then the seventh floor. And I did not recognize anything you just showed me in any of these photos. Most of these amenity spaces are on three and on 25. Um, and I may be actually, I may be wrong. We may have been on the seventh floor, the swimming pool, which we can't show pic. We couldn't take pictures of because it's not finished might be on the seventh floor. How interesting. Yeah, so, I think it's called the Amy Goof swimming pool, if I remember correctly. <laughs> so, there was a big terrace out on the 22nd floor that I used to call conference room 22. 
if the weather was nice, I would say, let's have our meeting out there. Why are we sitting in a conference room? Let's go look out over the lake. I wonder if that's still still there and available for folks. I believe on 22, that's a, a private condo as opposed to these amenity spaces. We already reported that an $8.1 million sale was made in the building. I think part of the terrace you're describing is part of that condo's terrace, but I could be wrong. It's a terrace for condos, but I don't remember whether the one that sold has that terrace. Well, I'm really happy to see that the lobby is intact because as you said, it was always very inspiring to walk through that lobby. And I mean, one thing I always remembered walking into work at the Tribune was I was always thinking how much history had passed through the, you know, how many reporters that yeah. were reporting really monumental stories in history had walked through that very lobby. And I hope the I hope the presidents feel that. I hope they kind of feel like connected to that. Oh yeah. Foreign correspondents, war correspondents, oh. they passed through that lobby. And here's kind of a cool thing in that lobby. Um, so the, the primary lobby space is protected as a landmark and the public will be able to just walk in and look at it. When you go through a residence only door, you get to something kind of cool. There's more of the elevator lobby. And you might remember, Amy, the elevator doors are all this carved metal grill work with the yeah. word Tribune spelled out in the doors. I've got to make a friend in there. Dennis, if you could just go ahead and buy a condo in there so you can invite me over and I can see them, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, I almost have the $4 million saved up. The average sale price so far is $2.7 million. And what I determined while we were talking, they haven't really put most of their sales in the sales records. They've sold 55 of the 162 condos, which is to say it's 43% sold as of Wednesday when, when we did the tour. Not the last time we'll talk about this, I'm sure. But last week when we were closing out the podcast and I said, what's coming up in the week ahead? You were talking about golf courses and how communities that kind of sprung up around golf courses seem to have gotten a little bit more interest in the pandemic housing boom. What did you find out about that? You know, one of the things that interested me is, yes, the houses in golf course communities are selling better than they were before. And many of the buyers aren't golfers. They're just people who like the idea of having all this outdoor space during the pandemic when, if I lived in the city, my parks were closed. A lot of suburban parks were closed as well. The idea of living in a park or a golf course became very appealing. So I looked at uh, the sales numbers on four golf courses, Ruffled Feathers, which is southwest, Royal Melbourne, which is north, and two others. And in every case, the increase in home sales during the pandemic was bigger than the increase in home sales in the surrounding area. That is, people are more interested in buying into those golf course communities than in buying into the, the community at large. All of the towns have, been, have had home sales booms. Their golf courses have had even bigger booms. What gave you the idea for that story? You know, uh, partly because one of those golf courses, Royal Melbourne, used to show up. Remember before the pandemic, I used to do something called This House Sold for Less Than? Oh, yeah. Um, and it was all these big baby boomer dream houses that were selling in 2018, 19 for 2004, 2002, even 1990s prices. And Royal Melbourne and Winstone, both in the Barrington area in general, Winstone is in Longgrove, they often showed up in that This House Sold for Less Than. But in more recent months during the pandemic sales boom, I'd been seeing some pretty good prices. I'd been seeing them sell quickly. And many of them in the past had lingered for a long time. So I started looking uh, and it wasn't just happening there. It was happening in these other places, south, out west and northwest. 
of the city, these big golf course communities, one in Naperville. Um, Naperville is selling like crazy these days, and White Eagle is selling even crazier. I could barely get the one real estate agent on the phone because she was so busy showing houses in White Eagle. And they're all so happy because just a few years ago, people didn't want golf course houses. Thinking back to the all the things we did in the before times <laughs> when you were tweeting about this house sold for less than. I was like, oh, yeah, that was a thing. At the time, I was saying, you know, these baby boomer dream houses, nobody wants them anymore. Nobody wants the cathedral ceilings, the two offices in a house, these big sprawling houses. Well, because of the pandemic, we do want these big sprawling houses. And if it opens onto a golf course, even if a couple of the buyers told me, you know, we don't golf, we might someday now that we live here, but we want to go for a walk along the greens. We like the big trees. We like just having so much space between us and the neighbors. And so these places heated up. All right, let's take a look at a couple of properties with a lot of history attached to them. One is a church that used to serve the Cabrini Green area. It is for sale again. Tell me about this place. This is the Wayman Church. I'm surprised it's back on the market because a couple of years ago, we reported that it had sold. Well, apparently that deal fell through. Nobody will talk to me. You hear me say that almost every week about one story or another, but nobody connected to this church, the real estate agent or the, the head of the church hierarchy would talk to me. Wayman Church starts out in the 19th century as a Swedish congregation. Eventually it becomes an AME, an African Methodist Episcopalian uh, church. And then when Cabrini Green gets built all around it, if you were to look at this picture uh, 30 years ago, you'd see towers everywhere in the background there. When Cabrini Green got built, it was serving a lot of the population of Cabrini Green. It also was, unfortunately, the backdrop for the notorious killing of Dontrell Davis, a general elementary school student who was walking to school and was gunned down. The bullets flew. The shooter was on one side of this church and Dontrell Davis was crossing the street on the other side of this church. So this was literally the backdrop that the bullets flew across. And as people may remember, Dontrell Davis's killing was one of the dramatic incidents that galvanized officials to get rid of those public housing towers. What's left when all those towers go away is this church. Three years ago, they put it on the market and had it under contract within days because literally across the street to the right in this photo, there are townhouses that are selling in the $650,000 range built since Cabrini was torn down. There are rental buildings and, and for sale buildings on many of the blocks around here. So this looked like a redevelopment site and the congregation put it on the market and announced before I could even get that story out that they had a buyer. Nothing was ever announced. Nobody ever rolled out plans. And then last week it came back on the market at at a lower price. The church congregation has had its phone disconnected. The church hierarchy wouldn't call me back. The real estate agent wouldn't talk. I don't know what's going to happen. I would imagine that if somebody buys it, they probably buy it with a plan to tear it down. When they had the last sale, a member of the hierarchy at the church told me that they were negotiating with the buyer to have a space created for the congregation, congregation being much smaller than it once was and needing much less space. But again, their phone's been disconnected and nobody will talk to me. Plus, the listing now says highest and best use is all new residential. So likely this church that served a Swedish congregation in the 19th century and a black congregation for much of the 20th century will be gone. Wow. I mean, it's really an interesting looking building. It's a shame. It, w- it would be a shame to see that torn down, but perhaps it is in, you know, bad disrepair. 
you know, when you look at the historical photos with Cabrini all around, because the, those Cabrini towers, you know, looked very boxy, very manufactured. This sort of stood out in the in essentially in the middle of all that, uh, looking like a survivor. Yeah. And, and who knows? I mean, perhaps a church buys this, but right. it's being offered as a residential development site. Every time I go through that area, I feel like there's a new thing. Oh, there's a new building. Yeah. There's new townhouses. There's so much development right there in that area. It'll be interesting to see what happens. It's true. Yeah. You know, and, and everything is coming that way. Let's yeah. not forget right across the street from here is Jenner Elementary School or was Jenner Elementary School. When Dontrell Davis was killed, he was on his way to Jenner Elementary. Uh, there was a new school built immediately across from this this church. Now it's a campus of the Ogden International School. And some people might remember there was a difficult sort of uh, transition period when those two schools were combined because a relatively poor student population and a relatively rich student population, the primary Ogden campus being on the Gold Coast, like that's a symbol of all the mixing that's been going on there over the past several years. And you really have to wonder, what does that do to this site? Yeah, certainly. Uh, it really does. Well, we'll talk about this site again for sure when you know more. I just need people to call you back. People have questions. Come on. I can't imagine anyone not not taking your phone call, Dennis. I, I oh, can't. Oh, you're so nice. I would always take your phone call. All right. Well, now let's go to a place in Austin. This was a home owned by an abolitionist that is going up for landmark status. And in fact, after our story came out, it did get temporary landmark status, which is one of the steps. There's a man named Seth Warner. The primary evidence of his abolitionism is he, in the 1850s and 60s, he owned a building called Warner's Hall, which was essentially where the Daly Center is now in downtown Chicago. It was burned in the Chicago fire, but he hosted the first, I can't remember the exact title, but it, I think it's the Illinois State Convention of Colored People was at Warner's Hall where uh, Frederick Douglass spoke and the members all spoke out against Illinois' black laws, which were uh, laws that essentially said, if you're black, you can't come to Illinois for longer than 30 days. So basically you can't live in Illinois. Seth Warner, I should say, was white and he's hosting these meetings at his hall. So obviously taking some risk at that time. Again, Warner's Hall was burned in the fire. In 1869, he built this house out in Austin, out in what then would have been the far suburbs of Chicago, was not affected by the fire because it's so far out. And um, he lived there, I think, until the 1890s. So even though this is not where he hosted those abolitionist events, it is, uh, as Ward Miller from Preservation Chicago told me, the last remaining footprint of the man because his, his hall burned. Um, oh, and one of the other things that happened at Warner's Hall was sort of a recruitment effort to get Illinois black men to fight, to join the, the North, the troops for the North um, in the Civil War. So, I mean, really sort of a lot of very important things happened there, but the building is gone. And actually on the eve of the 150th anniversary of the fire, that destroyed that hall is when this house went up for landmarking. Oh, that's kind of cool timing. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice timing. And it was voluntary by the homeowner. One of the, the interesting things about this story is they have owned the house for like 30 years and it's on the national register. It was on the national register of historic places before they even bought it. It had never been landmarked. And I asked why. And one of the homeowners said, nobody ever asked. 
This is a really neat house. I mean, this picture, everybody head to chicagobusiness.com and check it out. There's some details you don't, I feel like you don't see often in houses this age. That front porch, I feel like you usually see that on more of a bungalow style house. This little- Cupola. A cupola. A cupola. There's only one, so it's not a couple of cupolas. But um, (laughs) this was, so this was part of Seth Warner's farm. That space would not only have been an air circulation space, they used to cool their houses. You know, you'd open your doors and open those windows and hot air would float up through the house, cooling the house. Uh, But also there might have been a walkway up there for there are other houses of that vintage with cupolas where people would sit up there and watch what was going on. And there are stories, not about this house, of people watching the Chicago fire from the cupola of their home in the suburbs. Wow. What a neat house. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about now a home in Old Town. This has been occupied by the founder of the Chicago International Film Festival. Tell me about this place. Yeah, it's been occupied by the founder of the Chicago International Film Festival as long as there has been a Chicago International Film Festival. Michael Kutza actually uh, launched the film festival from this, at the time, apartment. The building later went condo. He has lived there as both a re- as first a renter and then an owner since the early 1960s. Um, and again, he founded the film festival here. He also used to host film festival events there. One of the things you can't see the living room floor, but the living room floor is black. It's kind of like the those rubber floors in your gym where people drop weights. But it's there because at an early iterate, at an early running of the festival, um, Busby Berkeley, who directed Hollywood musicals, was being honored. He brought Ruby Keeler, who was a tap dancing movie star of old Hollywood, to the events. And so Michael Kutza runs out. This is where the party's going to be in his. Uh, I don't know if it was an apartment or a condo at that time, but in his home. So he runs out and buys this rubber floor that dancers like. So Ruby Keeler and Busby Berkeley can dance in his living room. This is in the 1970s, decades after their um, Hollywood heyday. But you can just imagine, you know, I'm going to put down a floor uh, specifically for these Hollywood stars to dance on. And this is Chicago. This is not Hollywood. Really cool old Hollywood elements throughout it. I mean, all the black and white and kind of these cool photos, this neat art. This is a neat place. It is. It's relatively small. I mean, it's the kind of place he was a new grad of Loyola in the early 60s when he rented the apartment. Um, I think didn't he? I think he told me he was renting it for three hundred dollars a month. And it's it's not that big. It's a two bedroom um, with two balconies. One of them is in this photo. If you look at you see the two yellow pots of flowers. That's his balcony. But then he also has one on the back. It's a two bedroom. It's it's not huge. And he's asking uh, four hundred ninety nine thousand for it. But he's lived there since 1964. He's lived there since 1964. He launched the film festival from there and he put in a dance floor. I mean, and he put in a dance floor. Yeah, just, I had taken time before we started to count how many time, places I've lived since 1964. It might be about 64. <laughs> right. You don't run into this often, but I know a few people that started in a building as a renter and then became an owner when it became condo. I even know somebody who bought the building eventually. I mean, I think those kind of stories are so interesting because of just who you were when you entered the building versus yeah. you know how it became. Like Your relationship to that space just changed in such an interesting way over time. All right. Now let's go to Kenilworth, uh, to a mansion that just sold for $9.45 million. Tell me about this place. This one is huge. Uh, it's, I, I think it's a 13,000 square foot house. 
It it's right on the water. It's right on Lake Michigan. It doesn't have a beach. What it has is sort of a, a platform overlooking the water because th there's no sandy bottom there, or there's no sandy shore there. What they have is sort of a like a built-out dock, essentially running parallel to the bluff. But aside from that, I mean, you're looking from almost every room in the house out over Lake Michigan. It's somewhat ornate inside. It was built by Heritage Luxury Builders, which is um, Leo and Milena Birov. I've been writing about their houses since the early 1990s. A couple of weeks ago, I drove past the house on Westmore in Winnetka, where I met Milena Birov. Back when they weren't fully in business, she had to meet me at night because she was doing something else during the day. Um, and now they're building these houses. I think their most expensive one uh, has sold for 12 and a half million, but this one went for nine, 0.45. And it's another indicator of how this up the upper end of the market is absolutely going nuts. I forgot to check my count uh, before we went on, but we're now, remember just a couple of weeks ago, I said, oh, we've passed five, uh, 50 sales at $4 million or more. We're now well past 60. I, th I think we did that segment in early September. Yeah. We're past 60. And I think by uh, the end of October, we probably will have passed the record 71 sales for $4 million or more. If, if the pace keeps up, we'll pass it at the end of October. And then who knows where we'll be at the end of December. This, this appetite for these very high-end homes appears insatiable this year. Yeah. And, and if we pass it by a significant amount, you know, what is that really telling you about how we're finishing this year and question or wonder about for next year? You know, I guess I'll, it will be interesting to see if, if those numbers go back down. I mean, when you, when you, I've been tracking this for years. And when you look, we kind of have a big year followed by a less big year followed by a big year, just because, you know, people, people aren't really buying within a calendar year just to satisfy me. It's just that I'm counting for a calendar year. One of the things that we will have to watch toward the, to the end of the year is as of this sale, um, this is the only suburban house out of the top 10 sales of the year. Nine out of the 10 highest priced home sales of the year are in the city and primarily in downtown condos, also Lincoln Park. And that's a huge flip flop from last year, the pandemic year, where we reported at the end of the year that the, the shift had been massively out of penthouses into suburban homes. This is why all those houses on Sheridan Road, all those houses that face Lake Michigan are, I mean, they go like that. I, yeah. I think I'm doing a story soon on another piece of property coming on the market. And the expectation is um, that, you know, basically by the time the ink is dry on my story, it's likely to have been sold. All right. Well, in addition to that, what else is happening in the week ahead? Uh, I'm looking at that. And also there is, we did a story a couple of years ago. I did a story a couple of years ago on a um, company called Renovation Cells. They do sort of cosmetic upgrades. They don't do rehab. They don't fix your broken stairs or that sort of thing, but they make your kitchen, your baths, your flooring, those, those elements look more sellable, look like what the market wants, look like uh, what people are looking for in listings. Um, they've done so well that they're now going national. That was a couple of years ago. I feel like that was just six months ago we talked about that. I know. I had to look it up. It was January 2019. I was very surprised that now less than two years later, um, they're selling franchises. Time doesn't really exist anymore. It's not a real thing. <laughs> no. And I think you and I should franchise this podcast now since they're doing so well. I, I assumed we were. I assumed that was the case. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dennis. I will look forward to talking about that with you next week. Thanks, Amy.
Coming up, Chicago-based marijuana firm Pharmacan expands to Colorado and Michigan in its latest deal. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Is your student taking the SAT, ACT, or a high school admissions test this year? Academic Approach wants to help them get prepared. Academic Approach's time-tested tutoring programs ensure students grow their academic skills, improving their performance on standardized tests. The work together begins with a consultation with an Academic Approach director who will meet with you and your student to discuss their unique needs. Then Academic Approach creates an effective, fully customized study plan that targets their goals and matches them with a tutor who will be by their side, guiding them through instruction and practice throughout their tutoring journey. Get in touch today to learn how Academic Approach can help your student transform into a confident, successful test taker. Learn more at academicapproach.com slash daily gist. I'm Cranes reporter A.D. Quigg, and you're listening to Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Ahead of Chicago's October 15th deadline for city workers to report their vaccine status, the head of the Maine Police Union urged members to resist the directive and said the union will take the city to court. This is very clearly not a job action, not a call for a strike, none of that illegal stuff that I'm sure the city is going to try and make it out to be. If the city maintains its current course come midnight on Thursday slash Friday morning, members will be forced into a no-pay status that did not complete the portal information. In a video update to members, Fraternal Order of Police President John Catanzara said the union will file a temporary restraining order to, quote, try and get some relief in the courts from the city's deadline. Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced last week that city workers not fully vaccinated by Friday will face twice-weekly testing on, quote, their own time and at their own expense, with the results to be shared with the city. And workers who fail to report their vaccination status by that date will be, quote, placed on a non-disciplinary, no-pay status. Katanzara discouraged FOP members from reporting their vaccination status to the city ahead of that deadline. The city from the beginning has said that the religious exemption is the same as the conscientious exemption allowed under state statute. It is not. It is totally separate but they have not made an accommodation for that separate exemption. He's also insisted the mayor is out of bounds in requiring the vaccine for workers rather than presenting alternatives and said the city has no right to change the terms of employment, quote, on the fly. Henry Kravis and George Roberts, dealmakers in global private equity for almost half a century, are stepping down from their leadership roles at KKR and Company to make way for their hand-picked successors. The New York-based firm said in a statement on Monday that the billionaire founders of KKR elevated Joe Bay and Scott Natal to co-CEOs effective immediately. Kravis and Roberts will serve as executive co-chairman of the board, and along with other changes, KKR said it will move to a one-share, one-vote structure within five years. Years. The reorganization marks the final step in a succession plan initiated four years ago. It was also described by reporting from Bloomberg as one of the most significant generational shifts yet for the industry. Kravis and Roberts each have an estimated net worth of about $11 billion, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. On Monday, KKR also announced several structural and corporate governance changes, including eliminating its controlling preferred stock class, giving all shares equal voting status. The company said the move will increase the rights of their common stockholders and further align the interests of management and investors. 
Portillo's, the local restaurant chain backed by Berkshire Partners, is looking for as much as $400 million in its IPO. The Oak Brook-based company plans to sell just over 20 million shares at 17 to 20 bucks a piece, according to a prospectus filed to the SEC on Tuesday. At the top end of the range, Portillo's would have a market capitalization of over $1.4 billion, according to the number of shares outstanding listed in the filing. Also according to the filing, founded in 1963, Portillo's owns and operates 67 restaurants across nine states. Banking on the pandemic recovery, restaurant chains including First Watch Restaurant Group and Dutch Brothers also went public this year. Pharmacan is adding Colorado and Michigan to the states where it grows and sells marijuana. Crane's John Pletz reports that the Chicago-based company will buy LiveWell for an undisclosed price. LiveWell was founded in Denver in 2009 and has 21 stores in Colorado, which was the first U.S. state to legalize recreational marijuana. It's also building a cultivation facility in Michigan. Pharmacan said LiveWell founder John Lord will also join the board. The acquisition will mean about 60 dispensaries for Pharmacan, including eight in Illinois and 11 cultivation facilities. The company, which employs about 1,200 workers, is one of four Chicago-based cannabis companies to do business in multiple states, including Cresco Labs, Green Thumb Industries, and Verano Holdings. Pharmacan, which just two years ago called off a deal to be acquired by MedMen, is the only one of the four that isn't publicly traded, but Reuters recently reported that it is considering an IPO. The marijuana industry continues to consolidate, and more companies like Ascend Wellness are going public and acquiring competitors. In addition to here in Illinois, Pharmacan also operates in Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. It also recently raised $85 million in a debt offering. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to my guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get audio on demand. And remember to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist because that's the best way for others to discover our episodes. You'll also find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and on LinkedIn. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.